Um, but yeah, to, to start us off, Charles, can you just go ahead and can we maybe start from the beginning and talk about how, how you got into data science and machine learning and what your journey has been with um, financial institutions? Sure. So, um, so hi everyone. It's great to it's great to be here. I do I do a kind of public speaking, um, but it's uh, it's I've never done as many webinars <laughs> um, as I have in the last few days, and I'm sure that's the same for all of you. So, uh, uh, yeah, it's great it's great to be here, and um, I guess the great benefit of um, of doing it in this format is uh, you know we're we're going to be talking to people from a much uh, a much broader geography than, than we would normally be used to. So uh, welcome to everyone, uh, particularly uh, those of you who are not in the UK. Um, so yeah, for me, um, my journey began probably about um, about 10 years ago. Um, I was uh, I was involved in a, in a business that was doing uh, management reporting and um, and business intelligence. And uh, I joined that, that company um, not really knowing much, to be fair, about uh, about the subject. And so um, I went out and, and spoke to um, clients and, and basically asked them, look, what is it that um, what is it that you want from us? What is it that you need? And it was it was in 2010. It was the moment where everyone was starting to talk about um, data science. And um, and uh, those of you who've been around um, in this in the se sector since then will know that uh, those days, you know, in particular, you know, as, as as much or more so than than today, the skill shortage in the industry was was really acute. Um, and so we were lucky; we were in the right place in the right time. Um, our clients were mostly banks and financial institutions, um, and so we set up our, our mission to um, to hire really good talent in from from universities, um, train them um, in data analytics um, uh, techniques and, and 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 tools, and give them give them the tools, and then we um, we we um, we got them into projects with uh, with with large um, financial institutions. We built a business in. Um, in London and New York, uh, doing doing specifically that, and it was a great time. Um, we we sold uh, the business way too early. <laughs> it's fair to say um, we sold in 2014. Um, so um, you know, there's plenty of plenty of runway still today in this industry. Um, but uh, the founder of the company um, had uh, had been through the financial crisis. Um, and uh, so, um, you know, by the time that we were growing and stable and successful, um, you know, it was the moment where he wanted to cash out. Um, so I think, you know, this is probably a lesson for all of us now living in moments of crisis is, uh, you know, it's very, it's very grim uh, times or it can be very grim times. But then when, um, when you spot land, uh, sometimes uh, you want to put some roots down <laughs> when, you, when you find dry land. And that's certainly what, what our founder wanted to do. Um, so I left. Uh, I stayed for, uh, stayed with the business um, uh, through the through the acquisition and, and handover, and then I left. Uh, I left a year or so later, um, and it was a great a great time and a great journey. And um, you know, I learned a lot um, from uh, from our clients and from our team. And um, it was uh, just amazing timing because uh, you know we were we were talking about you know in those days uh, when I joined business intelligence and reporting, but very quickly the conversation moved into analytics and then the conversation moved into what we called context intelligence which now everyone will know as natural language processing um, and we we talked about this journey um, from sort of data integration to business intelligence so from di to bi and uh, it was quite clear that we were we were we were pointing the the arrow towards the future which would be ai and obviously that's the world that we live in we live in now um, so I've been quite blessed um, with that experience. And um, since since running that company, I've worked at uh, Deutsche Bank as the head of uh, technology for their innovation lab in London. Um, had a very short stint with a startup, which was a um, uh, catastrophic failure. Um, but that's another story. And then um, and then I joined Fidelity um, as the head of AI, which was a, a wonderful, wonderful role. Um, and I left uh, six weeks ago uh, on paternity. Um, and I'm not going back, um, which means I'm free to talk to you all today about my experience. So, um, so great to meet Perfect. you. Perfect. Well, yeah, thanks for that. I, I appreciate it. Uh, I'm just wondering, as uh, I was looking over your uh, your website, I saw that that you are the what you would call a data philosopher. 
And I was wondering what that is in your opinion and why you, why you would consider yourself that. Sure. So, um, so again, it comes back to when I was running uh, my data science company and um, we were talking, you know, we were talking about data science and, you know, trying to educate people what that was. And, and I made a, a remark once at a, um, at a conference that we were running saying that um, the tech industry quite often uses very poor metaphors um, for describing what we do. So, you know, the marketeers pick these labels, um, but they don't really, uh, they don't really describe what we do. So, you know, um, people, um, people of my generation will, will have remembered the, the days where we were focused mostly on data warehousing. Um, and I just always felt that was such a poor metaphor for what actually the job of, you know, uh, data warehousing architects, um, you know, warehousing in the real world is all about supply chain logistics, you know, an industry which everyone is acutely um, focusing on right now. Um, but data warehousing actually has very little to do with that. It's, a, it's about, you know, storing um, data um, and, and having that kind of golden, golden source, uh, golden immutable source for, for, for eternity. Um, and um, in similarly, you know, data science um, isn't really isn't really science. It's 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 um, it's you know stats and hacking and, and coding, um, and um, and and it's and actually a lot of what data scientists do, you know, isn't that kind of experimentation. It's a lot of you know data prep and and, and other things. And so the point I was trying to make at that conference was, you know, we, we need to be a bit more careful with our metaphors and we need to be maybe less, mislead, less, less misleading as, a, as an industry. And maybe we need people um, like me uh, from a non-tech background. I'm not a techie by, by, by trade. I'm a, I'm a lawyer of all things, um, which is another story. Um, and um, we need people to be maybe asking the questions. And, and, and I said, we, maybe we need more data philosophers and, and the name stuck. That was seven or eight years ago, and now I write a blog called Data Philosopher, which um, tries to call out uh, some of the some of the interesting things I come across in the tech industry. Perfect. Yeah, I I love that that name. And uh, so, I guess my next question is just getting into this idea that the talk title. Let's um, let's kind of look at that a bit more what we wanted to go over with um, what does best in class AI and machine learning look like and governance look like in the in the financial sector and how do you feel that is um, portrayed these days yeah sure so um, I'll just talk a little bit about my experience with fidelity um, and you know for those of you who are working in in large enterprises, then some of this might might well resonate. You may be um, experiencing uh, similar challenges um, uh, or not, and, and, and equally, this might be interesting. So, um, so I I, I was um, I was hired because um, the feeling was they were doing a lot of work around um, putting structure around the automation um, program, the RPA program, which you know, as we all know, has got very little to do with machine learning. Um, um, but the guy in charge of that was um, was continuously um, uh, coming up um, against uh, uh, you know, machine learning projects, which were kind of side of desk activities um, on, on the most part, um, what I would call passion projects um, uh, um, from developers who were interested because they didn't really have any real permission for, for or any real business cases for what they were doing. Um, and they also had the situation where you'd have you know senior people who might commission something on a on a whim, um, and so they're kind of got these kind of two contrasting scenarios. And um, there was um, a number of these projects, um, and the, the risk was that if if any of them um, failed and got leadership attention, it could it could cause um, a sort of disinvestment from um, you know, from from other programs associated with with um, automation, uh, which which was a, a major program. Of work, so what they wanted was they wanted someone to come in and put, first of all, a strategy around um, um, AI, which um, we, which we're talking about machine learning specifically, but we were using the AI um, title, um, and um, and and that strategy, um, you know, needed to help the organisation make sure that it was getting um, a, you know a good return on its investments. Um, and then secondly, to make sure that the, the right operating model, the right structure is in place to, uh, to deliver on that. So that's what I was hired ostensibly to do. 
And, um, you know, one of the first things I did was try to, first of all, make sense as to what actually did the organization have in place. And so, you know, that was a, you know, on the, on the face of it, quite an easy task because we, um, we, 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 you know, we spoke to um, the, the teams and the data analytics teams and the people who are, uh, you know, actually doing the development and, and people who had been active and proactive on the internal blog and sort of talking about what they were doing. And, you know, we were able to uncover, you know, 15, 20 projects, um, you know, off the bat. Um, but then it was quite clear that there was a lot of other activity which actually people were less forthcoming about, not because, you know, they were up to bad things, but simply because they didn't really have the, the mandate to do what they were doing. They were experimenting with, with all the right intentions on the side, hoping to come up with something useful and hoping to get, you know, the kudos that would come from this. And so it became more of a challenge to really understand what, what the organization had in place. So we got to the point where we maybe, I think we uncovered like 26, 27 initiatives. And um, I remember doing a, a briefing for the, um, the CTO and, and for his direct reports and said, look, you know, here's a, you know, here's a map. You imagine like a Venn diagram. I've got all these little, little circles I'm drawing. I'm saying, now here's all the projects. You know, here's project one, here's project two, here's project three, you know, here's project 26. Uh, here's all the projects we're doing today. Here's, all, here's, here's the uh, um, machine learning activity that's going on within the firm today. Um, the problem is that, you know, here's another circle. Let's imagine a Venn diagram with these two circles overlapping. This is what we should be doing. And of course, there's an overlap. There's an intersection between, between those two. Um, and the, the question was, you know, we, 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 we need to go through an exercise to discover what, what are the things that were really important to the firm, but also what are the things that would be important, but we're not doing yet. That's, that's the most important thing. And all this other stuff is just crap. <laughs> just stop it because we're using people's time um you know for for you know not for the best purposes it's not you know not bad people they're not doing bad stuff they just you know they could be focused on way more valuable things um so that became like the the number one um thing i think six weeks in you know that was very clear from the cto we had that mandate to um to go out and, and really figure out what 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 should be in that place and then um, you know we were kind of I would say wading through the treacle um, two, three, four months uh, later. And um, we, would, we were dealt a gift and the gift came from the regulator and gifts never come from regulators. Those of you who work in financial services will, 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 will learn that, you know, <laughs> you try and avoid regulatory conversations that always full of bad news. But in this case, actually, we were, we were, we were dealt a gift and it was the, um, in the UK, we've got the Financial Conduct Authority. And the Bank of England, they they basically um, perform different aspects of, of regulating the financial markets, and um, they had teamed up in order to do uh, what they called a survey of of the industry um, around the usage and application of machine learning. And um, the reason this was a gift was because um, you know when you know someone like myself um, can can walk around holding a piece of regulation and say, hey, I need to do this because the regulator. It's not, it's not being, I'm being a bad guy and I'm being a pain in the ass. So the regulator is telling me I need to do this. Suddenly it gives me permission to find out everything that's going on that, um, that it was more difficult. And so suddenly, you know, four months of like really struggling to understand the extent of all the projects. Um, within the next three weeks, you know, we, we had a list of 60 projects and, and everyone was very forthcoming. And it suddenly enabled us to, to get a visibility into, into things and particularly in terms of the risk and the controls that, that, that were in place or, you know, were not in place. Um, and um, so we, we, we submitted the, the regulatory um, uh, uh, response um, and, and I signed off on that. And, um, and but also we, 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 we realized that, you know, the, the, the financial regulators were likely to, um, to, to continue to do this on, a, on, a, on an annual basis because you know, what they were concerned about was systemic risk within the financial industry. You know, what if lots of banks are all doing some, you know, crazy thing with some, some vendor solution that goes wrong and then the whole banking industry goes, you know, to shit. Well, you know, we all know we had other risks <laughs> that we, we hadn't modeled. It, you know, it wasn't machine learning that was going to go wrong that was going to take out the financial industry. Um, but, um, but um, you know, we, uh, you know we, 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 we could see very clearly that the FCA was going to ask this on a regular basis. And so that gave us a second opportunity, which is to say, look, you know, let's get on the front foot now. We know that we're going to be asked this on an on a annual basis. Um, let's put in place um, some, some basic things to make sure that we're not just like 
causing a fire drill every single time we need to ask you for a, an inventory of our models and an inventory of our risk management. So we put together um, some, some, I would say, loose requirements uh, day one. And, uh, and you know, the, uh, the results predictably was, you know, a lot of Excel spreadsheets for people to fill in. Um, and I said this to Luke, the, uh, you know, the, the CEO um, guy at Dot Science um, a few months ago, that, uh, you know, if, if, you know, some people measure their success in life by, you know, positive karma or something like that. Or some people maybe measure their success in life by um, carbon footprint. You know, do you have a negative carbon footprint? If, if, if you are, then when you die, you've, 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 you've been a net contributor to the species. Um, in my case, I, I measure my success in life by, um, you know, have I eradicated more Excel than I've created? Um, and um, unfortunately, in my time with Fidelity, um, you know, I, I was a bad person because I, I created more Excel than I got rid of. Um, because actually, you know, it's kind of nuts. You know, we're doing, we're doing AI reporting <laughs> um, in Excel. It's, it's, it beggars belief. Um, anyway, that, that was the situation, the best we could, we could do. Um, and then I was lucky. I went. Uh, um, I met up with uh, Nick Hemley in Bristol, who's uh, you know, the illustrious leader of the Bristol fintech, uh, sorry, Bristol uh, uh, tech community. And um, I was just kind of catching up with him and had a coffee and filling him in about what I was doing at Fidelity. And um, he mentioned Luke and Dot Science, and I said, "Oh, that sounds in interesting." I met up with Luke, and then you know, boom, penny dropped. Um, and that's why, you know, I think you guys are, are in, a, in a really amazing position because, um, you know, it, it's, it's clear, you know, you need to have a platform. Anyone in this space who's in an enterprise needs to have a platform to, um, to, to the very basic level to keep an inventory of the models that are being experimented on, those that are in pre-production and those that are in production. You know, all of us are using multiple platforms. You know, some people are using, you know, Azure ML, people will be doing stuff on AWS. Um, you know, Jupyter Notebooks, you know, whatever. Um, and, um, you know, you, yes, you can, you know, if you're on, if you're, if you're, if you're um, developing, say, with Watson, you know, you might have some tools from IBM to keep a governance around what you're doing with, with Watson Studio, but that doesn't help you for, for what you're doing on other platforms. And so, um, you know, people like me and, and, and my bosses, you know, want to have a, a single view on the organization, you know, what is the extent um, of activity and what is the extent of risk that we carry and so like an inventory is like you know hygiene it's like the basic level you know and, and until I met dot science the answer was Excel um, and um, from that basis then you know the next level is 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 then possible which is you know there are going to be some models that we develop which are like crazy risky and some models that we develop which are like you know who cares um, and um, you will have different risk um, assessment frameworks for those. And what you want to make sure is that you want to make sure that your developers are, are following those risk assessment frameworks. And in fact, you can, you can you know, have that auditability in place. You know, so people like me, I just want to see a report. I want to see something with like, you know, red, hopefully no red. I want to see something with green everywhere, but I want to see where the red is so I can then take action. Um, and you, know, you guys do that, which is, which is awesome. Um, and then, you know, the other stuff, you know, the stuff which, you know, is probably more interesting maybe for the community about, you know, collaboration and provenance and the ability to, um, to kind of shine a light on p-hacking and, and other stuff and, uh, you know, give, give you productivity tools, you know, to, that's going to mean a secondary, you know, the basic stuff is just having some, having some controls in place. Um, and what's really interesting, just to kind of um, end on this point is, you know, it's probably since about a year I've been saying, you know, um, there will be mandatory reporting on, on this, certainly in the financial sector, and probably the timeline is 24 to 36 months. So therefore, those of us in the financial sector need to kind of start preparing for that and, you know, get our shit together. Um, and then um, what's really interesting, last month, the European um, Commission published their white paper on governance of AI in um, the European Union. And I you know they've, they've said the same thing. And uh, I'm just looking at, at the white paper now on my iPad. It's like page 19 talks about, you know, the requirements to document what we're doing and have, um, you know, ha have that detail and that auditability and, and the good record keeping in place and, and the ability to be able to replicate the results of models maybe a year after they were originally developed. You know, all these things, you know, even the, um, you know, at a European level, you know, it's, 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 this is a consultation paper, it's not in law, 
but you know it's a matter of time it's 12 months and so you know i think we're living in the in the 90s if you take the analogy of software development you know the kind of wild west of you know write down code and email it between people and you know no version control and all that kind of crazy shit that maybe people on this call will be too young to remember but you know i'm just about old enough to um but you know we're living in those days of machine learning and, and it will all come crashing to an end you know i think pretty soon and that's why we need to get a grip of governance so so it was a long long rambled answer but i, I just wanted to give a bit of context that's perfect that yeah and and my follow-up question with that is do you think only with regulations will you see that change or do you feel that there's some places that are proactively doing it yeah, so I, I, I'm not a, I'm not, hey, I'm not a big believer in, um, in regulation for regulatory sake, but also I'm not a believer in like waiting for the wheels to fall off before you, uh, before you take action. So I think, I think firms need to kind of, um, you know, decide their own risk appetite. And it's going to depend on the industry you operate in. I'll come back to the European um, uh, Commission uh, paper. You know, what they talk about is, you know, um, applications which are high risk or maybe um, activities which are high risk. So you know, if you're in the, if you're in the business of uh, um, autonomous uh, vehicle developments, then you're in a high risk industry. You know, you're you're doing something that if it goes wrong, people could die. So, um, so you know, if you're in that space, why wait for future regulations to come? You know, you need to have some basic controls. You need to be thinking about your governance. If you're in the space of like, um, I don't know, optimizing the network for Zoom, which is like super important right now because we're all depending on it. But if it breaks, then you know no one's going to die. Um, then do you need to have the same controls in place? Possibly not. Maybe you can be focused more on commercial activities um, and 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 just you know getting getting shit done and, and not worrying about maybe documenting what you're doing. Uh, maybe those things are like secondary. So I think um, I think the kind of common sense uh, I would say common sense um, approach. You know, those of you who are working in in spaces where you know the risk of what you do has higher, then you know let's get some controls in place. Other things, I think it's a bit more of a nice to have. Um, but I think uh, you know inevitably over time, best practice will emerge. And and you know in software development now, you know there's um, there's 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 a, there's yeah, there are still people who are maybe more sloppy around their controls and documentation, but that's a, um, you know, it's a, it's a very small domain that those people can operate in. Um, you know, for the most part, enterprises expect, you know, governance to be, to be, to be followed and best practices is, uh, is widely recognized. Yeah, that makes sense. And I got to ask, <laughs> and you don't have to mention any names or anything, but have you seen a catastrophe happen and what was it like? How, how did that go over if you have? And if not, no worries, we can move on to the next question. Well, I think we're all like watching a slow, a slow moving train wreck happen in, 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 in life at the moment. Um, but in terms of, um, uh, in terms of um, uh, machine learning, no. I've seen, I've seen plenty of train wrecks in terms of like traditional um, data analytics. So I could tell I could tell one story, which was um, a, a funny one. Um, we um, we were doing some work for a credit card company. Um, uh, it was back in my my um, my data analytics company days, and um, and they had a um, they had a customer with like clearly too much time on on his hands, um, and that customer had basically gone through every single credit card statement and built an Excel model and um, wrote to the credit card company and said, look, guys, you've overcharged me. And um, then they didn't, they, they, you know, when you get those sort of letters, you, you should like, you know, <laughs> you should jump on them. And they didn't, they, they, they basically timed out. And so the guy went to the ombudsman um, and said, you know, I had this problem, I raised a complaint, they didn't respond, look into it. And of course, you know, then, they looked into it and sure enough, this car company wasn't actually calculating the fees um, accurately. And, and, and the interesting thing is like how actually the fees compound over time. It was like a, a, a rounding error, but the rounding error compounded in it. It, was, it wasn't material in, in the sense of, you know, it was probably, I can't remember now, but it was like tens of, of, of pounds, not, not, not thousands of pounds. But the point was, it's like, you're a freaking credit card company. You've got to get the shit right. <laughs> you know, you have a fiduciary duty to your to your to your customers, and so they, the um, the regulator came in and said, basically, you know, sort it out now. 
and they put a penalty, a, a fine in place. But the problem was their kind of calculation engine was so, um, you know, was so deeply embedded in their systems, it, like unpicking it took them months. And we helped them with their analytics and we, we helped them get out of that very difficult position. Um, and I think it was just a lesson, you know, you know, there was nothing about that was a black box. There was nothing about it, which was, you know, we, we could unpick it. It was, it was straightforward. Um, but I've, I've often thought, you know, hell, if that was a, um, you know, for a similar scenario, if that was something which actually, you know, the level of explainability wasn't, wasn't there, then my God, that could be not only buried for a much longer period of time, but also, uh, when it did um, when it did come up, it could be very difficult to unpick. And I think the interesting thing about that credit card company is they they were told by their um, by the regulator um, to to write to all their customers and and tell them, you know, of the problem. And so I think there's a lot of customers that got like you know credits for two pound fifty on their next credit card bill and probably wondered why. And you know we were <laughs> we were the reason why. Yeah, it reminds me of my my wife had been overcharged a few times by our phone company and she swears against this phone company one of the phone companies here where we live and i'm wondering if it might be one of those one of those problems that they were facing too um yeah who knows but the i guess the next the next question that i had and anyone else who has questions feel free to put them in the chat and in about 10 minutes we're going to open it up so that if you want to ask questions directly um go ahead but my my next question was more on the lines of do you feel the current situation right now with machine learning and ai making the predictions that they're making is there anything that is borderline dangerous happening oh well um that's a that's a great question so i think i think um i think you know i should stick to my stick to my lane and and that's uh that that's that's financial services so um i would say that the uh the you know i can't speak for fintechs because um they uh they kind of operate you know in a you know kind of you know by nature more opportunistic manner um, because they're trying to exploit the, the the fact that large financial institutions are slow moving, um, um, and so they probably have a, a different risk appetite. But I would say that um, large financial institutions are very very cautious about um, about what they do. And I think um, you know my own experience. You know, there may be people in in, in the industry who, who who would disagree with this statement. But I think uh, my own experience, um, having worked in in financial services before the financial crisis. And after the financial crisis is that, you know, it's, 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 it's a totally different space to the one it was. Um, and if you've seen like Wolf of Wall Street, you, you, you might get a, a sense of what it was like in the 80s. And I, you know, when I joined in the early 2000s, it kind of still was a little bit like that. Um, and, um, you know, what, what, what happened in those days was there were, there were people who, um, who were in the business lines, who were, you know, their job is to make money. Uh, uh, and make money for the bank or make money for the, you know, the insurance company or whatever. Um, and then there would be a compliance department and the compliance department was basically the, to, you know, they, people used to joke, they say, oh, that's the department of, of, um, of, of, you know, uncommerciality or the department of, of stopping you do things. And anyway, if something went wrong, it was their problem. And it was very much a them and us culture. And then the financial crisis hit, you know, um, you know, uh, it was it was a, a very big shock for everything for everyone working in that space and um and i think the biggest thing that everyone in the industry experienced even people like myself who worked in technology was there was a reputational hit so you know we went from being masters of the universe which was kind of one of the quotes i think uh, came out of um uh flash boys or, or or one of those books or one of the movies around that time um you know went from being kind of really kind of uh you know top of of of, of the tree to being despised by 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 many people because of uh, the consequences of the financial crisis were so grim for for ordinary people around the world and so i think that reputational hit um, and i've definitely experienced it you know going into a, a party and you know telling someone you work for a bank and they like look at you like you're scum um, you know, it, it makes you think twice about how you behave. And, um, and so, um, so I think that that is much more ingrained in the culture. So I, I think, you know, things which are risky in financial services, things like, um, 
you know, decision making um, on, on investments, um, you know, to the customer uh, without a human in the loop. Um, you know, that's something where, you know, the, the, the big banks will move incredibly slowly and they won't be very innovative because they're terrified of something going wrong. Um, obviously, there's, there's, there's other things, um, you know, like a chatbot, for example, um, you know, it might be generating language which hasn't been actually approved. You know, one of the crazy things in a bank is if you, if you want to speak on behalf of the organization, you have to be approved. But also a lot of the messages that you give have to be scripted. So if I was on this webinar as, a, as an employee of one of, the, one of my previous employers, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be allowed to say any of this shit. I would have to kind of <laughs> give you stock answers and all the questions would have to be approved in advance, you know. Um, so they're, they're, they're super risk averse. And obviously, you know, chatbots, um, if the, the language is being generated on the fly, much as I'm just talking, you know, talking nonsense, um, you know, that would really panic uh, a, a bank. So, so I think it's fair to say that um, financial services today is, is maybe overly paranoid about this stuff. And we, maybe the needle needs to move back a little bit more. So that's my own experience. I don't think there are risky, uh, risky um, uh, examples. In trading, um, there's lots of, of, um, of mechanisms in place. And we're seeing that now within the financial markets, which are incredibly volatile. You know, when, mm -hmm. when the markets fall by a certain amount, the, the, the market trips out. Actually, I'm not sure if it works the other way around when the market rises by a certain amount, whether it trips out as well. I don't think it does because they rose quite well yesterday. Uh, but certainly when they fall, the market it trips out. And so, you know, I, th I think the engineering around you know, making sure there is not a systemic risk is, is pretty good. In other industries, I can't speak to. I, I don't have that experience. But I, um, you know, I do worry that actually we, we, we do get overly focused on, you know, this is go back to my philosopher uh, blog. Um, I do worry that we, sometimes we get overly um, focused on the engineering and 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 making sure that the the quality of, of the work has been has been done well and not focused on the application. And so you know things which 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 have caused really big problems, like let's say Cambridge Analytica. You know that wasn't a failure of you know it wasn't a bunch of bad engineers um, working there. Um, it was a bunch of like super talented engineers doing things which were like morally questionable. <laughs> um, and, um, and I think those are the problems. Those are the risks we have. You know, we've got, we've got, you know, really great technology, lots of people trying to exploit that technology for commercial uh, uh, gain. And, and, and maybe, you know, we need to put some controls around the applications in, in some places. So that's where I think the risk is more broadly in financial services. The risk is uh, just, you know, being dinosaurs and, and acting slowly. Completely, completely. And I guess um, you, you make the case for more data philosophers too. There's, oh, there, needs to be, <laughs> there needs to be more of, of that happening. Yeah, um, and one of me and 17 of you on the school, so uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm outnumbered and it should be maybe more parity. Well, uh, I just have one more question and I see people are putting questions in the chat so we can answer those. Uh, I, I watched your TED talk. I thought it was great. If anybody hasn't seen it, uh, check it out. We'll, we'll send a link to that too. And you made the case for taking the humans out of the loop in the agricultural sector in that TED talk. And I'm wondering if you felt the same way about it in the banking sector and how far off of that dream you feel we are. Right. Okay. Um, so 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 yeah <laughs> where do i start with that one um so thanks for watching my ted talk um uh, uh it's it, it never did go viral on youtube i was gutted but just because i haven't had enough viewers i could always do it with a few more so thank you for watching it and if you haven't watched it please watch it um the point i was trying to make in that ted talk was um the uh i was asked by the organizer to talk about um um automation and technologies in a very positive way um, because there was a lot of fear, and still is a lot of fear, but um, you know, when I, it was three years ago and I did that, um, there's a lot of fear around automation and taking people's jobs and, um, and you know, something which people get very emotive about. And, and, uh, and what they asked me for is like working in that space and, um, and, and, and you know, can you, can you say something positive and uplifting? It's like a, 
it's a really hard task, um, particularly, you know, you, you know, it's dangerous really just going marketing kind of all crazy or going all science fiction. Um, and so it struck me that um, the, uh, the problem with, with, with automation is that uh, the benefits could accrue to a small group of people. And I think we do see that. Um, uh, you know, an, an obvious example is, is uh, say, Blockbuster versus Netflix, um, or Amazon Prime now is probably made even Netflix partially irrelevant. So um, in the old days, when we had video stores, you had, you know, lots of um, entrepreneurs in every town who ran the franchise. And so you had like these kind of millionaires scattered all over, all over the world. Um, but then when, when Netflix happens, you know, the Blockbuster franchise ended and yeah you end up with a very small number of people who have you know the billionaires um and so the, the pyramid becomes you know really you know distorted um and so that was that was my concern and and the answer that that a lot of people give to solving this and it's one of the things that we're talking about now in addressing coronavirus is universal basic income and my problem with that is again from from the lens of working in financial services is um is I just don't understand how the credit industry would work, how the credit industry would operate, if you if your only source of, of income was um, was a was a government check, you know how would you how would you borrow against that that certainty? It, it's, it's it's actually like a feudal society, um, and in fact I call it I called it techno feudalism in the in the TED talk. And so actually, if your goal is to like help people survive after automation hits, then you know UBI might might address that survival problem but it might not address um the um uh the, the the other aspect which is like the purpose in people's lives and thriving as as humans and 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 also important things social mobility you know some of us work you know as hard as we can we 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 work till our knuckles bleed because we want to do better for ourselves and better for our kids um, and, um, and, and how do you give those people opportunity if, if you just cut them a government check? So those, those are the things I was concerned by. And so what I said was actually maybe, and this is going to sound like crazy socialist uh, um, uh, uh, talk, but I was talking about actually maybe we should invert the, the problem and, and rather than worrying about automation, maybe we should proactively automate and maybe we should proactively automate those industries essential for our survival, like food production, so to take the anxiety away from people who are worried about where the next um, meal is going to come from. Um, and so, you know, my kind of view behind that is, you know, maybe we could tax those industries where it doesn't matter whether we automate and, and, and find those efficiencies like banking. <laughs> I mean, does it really matter if your credit card company is a little bit more efficient and introduces a whole bunch of robots? um and and lays off a bunch of people in, in 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 return you know maybe we should tax and disincentivize that maybe we should we should incentivize um industries which are essential for our survival um to automate super proactively so we can bring the cost of their products down and um and and and, and people can then work uh, live without without needing to work um so three years ago i was worried about automation wrecking society and automation and the big thing I, I worried about and I worry about today is social unrest. I worry that uh, if people are really um, dissatisfied with with the world around them and they feel that they don't have a voice and they don't they can't change anything and they feel helpless then you know we've, we see what what happens you know Hong Kong last year was 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 a disaster um, France uh, in Paris in particular you know, the yellow vest movement, you know, social unrest is a real, a really big issue. And, and now we're living in, you know, these very difficult times. Um, you know, I would say that's the biggest risk that we have um, today is, 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 is exactly that. So I think, um, you know, UBI, um, UBI may, may actually be a necessity now in, in the short term, because a lot of people are going to be out of work, a lot of people who need to eat, pay their rent, um, you know, uh, look after their kids and, and do very basic things. We're, in a, we're probably going to hunker down into survival mode, but long term, it's it's surely not a solution because it will only reinforce the the, the imbalance between the wealthy and the and the, and, and the not so wealthy. Um, so um, so yeah, it's a long long answer explaining my TED talk, but uh, yeah, the answer the answer is that, um, you know, we need more we need more automation in the things which are essential for our survival. And, and the automation that happens in other stuff like 
banking credit cards insurance is is just a nice to have and and those firms could probably pay a bit more tax um uh, it's a good thing i don't work for a, a bank at the moment I'll, yeah. I'll be <laughs> perfect well i see uh i see a question in here from jh i don't know if you want to go off of mute and ask the question yourself or you want me to just ask it um jay if you're out there feel free to jump on otherwise i'll i'll ask it in a sec here seems like he's i uh okay so jay was asked oh there he is yeah okay so here i'm okay you can hear so i just want to ask a technical question um about explainable ai or ml models is um, this kind of explanation. So why models choose certain features? Why models behave in a certain way? Do models um, um, adapt to a global um, topology of the feature space? So for example, for different markets, the same model uh, or, or the same algorithm would uh, need to come up with different kind of qualitative models. Do these uh, characteristics of these models somehow reflect the topology, uh, the mathematical topology of the market that it's trained on? Um, are these kinds of things um, evaluated before an algorithm is uh, put into production? And if yes, is this kind of evaluation mandatory or is this only for, yeah, um, uh people or um, scientists or uh data philosophers who have like a more um in-depth approach to what they're doing is this mandatory for them or is this regulated um if they do this are there any best practices so how do i uh tell about my own measurements and evaluation if this is done correctly and if i do all these kind of things do i also monitor my current model in the wild because I can only train uh, the model on you know, certain types of data, on historic data. Um, data may get skewed uh, in reality over time or um, real data might actually not uh, be applicable to the uh, trained model really. Um, is this kind of behavior uh, monitored um, and how do you go about it? How do you how do you even monitor it? Because I think here even a human must be in the loop in order to do the qualitative evaluation. So how do you do this if you do this? Sure. Okay. It's a it's a it's a it's a great question. We could probably spend the whole hour discussing this. Um, but let me give you a quick answer on this. So I think um, so explainability. Um, it's a, it's a funny one. So hey, the philosopher in me would argue, why the heck do we call it explainability? It's, we should call it explicability. It's uh, somehow the AI industry has invented a completely new word to describe this. Um, and and I've, I've never met anyone who could tell me where explainability as a word comes from. Um, but it seems to be uh, just just a word that only we talk about in in the, in the state of science community. Um, but it's, it's, it's an interesting one because I think a lot of software vendors pick up on a, uh, uh, a, the non-technical person's paranoia about the black box, the system not being able to explain its results. And what they, um, you know, what, what, what people don't think about is actually we're black boxes, humans, you know, we, we, uh, if, if I crash my car, um, and, uh, you know, the, I, 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 someone the policeman stops me and says what happened you know i'm i'm not going through an audit of every single sensory experience i had and every thought process i was going through every neuron firing i just i post rationalize i say oh i saw a cat running in front of the car and i swerved and i crashed or whatever lame excuse i came up with so um you know we we um we post rationalize and we've we've built a kind of a system of trust around around that and and, it, and it's good enough for supporting the world that we live in um and so we don't get too hung up on this idea of explainability with with humans but for somehow with machines we we really do i think what, what i'm pleased about is you know so first of all the, to answer your question about Regulation, there's no regulation as far as I know on this so far, but I think it's only a matter of time. Um, the European uh, Commission white paper talks about replicability. 
And I think that's a more important point um, is to be able to, um, to, to run a model maybe 12 months later, once you know, you've upgraded TensorFlow and you're running on a you know, totally different data set and your model's updated and be able to still go back and, and, and repeat the same thing with the same conditions. I think that's more important than to be able to explain specifically why um, the, this, this happened. Um, uh, that's, that's my personal view. And I, it's good to see the European um, Commission uh, reflect that in their consultation. And I'm hoping over the next year, industry will, will nudge them towards replicability and you know, having good best practice around audits of your data and your, and your model version control and those sort of things. So I think that's really important. But what, what you do see, and I, I, I saw this from some of the big, bigger vendors, and I've, I've got a huge amount of time for people like IBM, particularly, I, I think they're an outstanding organization. But I, I got a little bit cross with them when they keep coming in and, and, and presenting to execs like, oh, you know, this, this um, governance tool can, can help you select a different model, which may be you know, slightly less accurate, um, but we, at least we can, we can explain the results. Um, because I think actually, you know, in that, in that space, you know, it's not, it's, this is an optimization problem. You, you want to optimize for performance of, of your model versus the explainability of your model, the explicability of your model. And, and actually, I think there are other things we want to optimize, which I think are more important than simply whether a human can, 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 can explain exactly specifically why something occurred. And I think those optimizations are things like energy consumption. Um, you know, there are a lot of, there are a lot of things where, um, you know, optimizing, uh, you know, running, running a model on, on a massive data set and, and, and getting, you know, really, really accurate prediction doesn't matter when something which um, which consumes a lot less energy uh, can give a, an approximation um, which is a lot easier so I think we should be focusing on optimization uh, of, of models um, for on performance grounds but to simply focus and labor on an explainability I think is the wrong the wrong vector and, and we should think about you know energy performance uh, I would argue would be a, a higher a higher priority um but it's something which the yeah it's something which i think a lot of software vendors like latching onto because they can they can um they can scare people um and you know and scare fear fear sales um so that's 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 my that's my take on this um but if you've got if you've got the basics in place if you've got good good controls around your version control around your data um and you can replicate the the results I don't think you need to worry too much whether you can explain the result. Perfect. And I think I saw a question from Kieran. If you're out there, you want to go ahead and give it a shot. Howdy, can you hear me? Yes, hey. we can. Yeah. Okay, super. I'm going to have to fight slightly against my uh, kind of stage anxiety because uh, I don't want to just gobble out this message, this question. Um, so, Backing up a bit from the explainability, uh, earlier on in, say, a machine learning pipeline, you'll have to do a load of data cleansing. And I'm from a, a software vendor who's providing solutions to financial services, but they're a little reluctant to do more than they have to when giving us projects and their own data for us to work with. So if we come across data when cleaning it up, ready to train a model, uh, which just looks plain wrong. Um, I just wanted your two cents, um, probably Charles, because you work as a, a lawyer in this kind of sector. Um, is there any way we can hold those companies accountable for their data so we can give them a list of, oh, here's all of the, the rows that we think you need to look into and maybe you need to mop it up and clear things up? Or is it better and easier for us um, just to kind of say, we made these changes ourselves to your data based on common sense and it just looked wrong and we could work out what a, a practical solution would be for it and sell the model back to them, but with kind of disclaimers underneath to say, you know, it's not gonna work in certain circumstances because the way we trained it was uh, manipulated by us in order to just get it work because your data frankly sucked. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I, I guess which, which would be the better choice to go with, like try and get these companies to become accountable and have more regulations so that if we find problems with their data, they have to address it? Or is it better just to sell our product as is with a little disclaimer? Yeah, okay. Great, 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 great. Another great question. Um, it's, it's awesome to be on a, on a webinar like this where you know, so you, you get you get proper challenge. <laughs> I have to get my brain working. Um, so thank you. Um, so um, where do I start with this? I think um, I think uh, I experienced something very similar. Um, I, w I won't mention the company's name, but but uh, we were doing uh, we were doing um, some work where we were reliant on data that was coming from a third party. It was a, it was a strange situation where actually the, some of the data originated from us. Um, and, and we were, we were, um, you know, we were, we were pub, uh, publicizing, um, and then that, that other firm was then aggregating data from us and our competitors and other people in the market, and then selling that as a bundle back to people like us so that we could, um, you know, do, 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 um, forward analytics. And, and what was interesting is that we, we definitely had some data quality issues ourselves. So the data that we were, we were sending out in some cases might, might've been wrong. Um, but then some cases the data we would be sending out um, that we got back was somehow transformed and and how it you know how 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 um, the integrity got lost through the process we have no idea and so then we spent a lot of time um, not only dealing with customer uh, let's call them inquiries but you know complaints really um, as to like you know, why was the data why was the data gone why the data gone wrong um but we were also doing a lot of the data cleansing and and, and and trying to put some governance in place around this so it was like it was a really difficult thing but we had a very open relationship with the um with the, with the vendor and you know we were working with them and we were actually using um uh, some some tools that we, had, we were experimenting with in order to try and predict data quality issues so that we could be a little bit more open with with that vendor um, but it was it was clear that actually a lot of the value um, that existed in that in that in that chain was around the quality of the data and actually doing the cleansing was actually adding value and and the value wasn't going back to us it was going to go to the third party. Um, on, on terms of liability, I um, uh, I, th I think it's a really big um, opportunity there and, and and I think again coming back to the European white paper on on future regulation I, I definitely think there's going to be um because the the, the the liability regime that we have in europe at the moment focuses on products and services and and fitness for purpose and 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 and, and sort of you know negligence and, and and all of those things that we could have used to in a kind of in an old-fashioned world um but i think when when a a, 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 um, a system malfunctions because the quality of the training data was wrong or it, it malfunctioned in real time in runtime because um, something went wrong with the data feed um, and, and the data came from somebody else whose liability is that you know that's a really interesting problem for lawyers to make lots of money out of um, but I think us as an industry we've got to be really clear about that and you know I guess no surprise given this is a, a dot science uh, hosted hosted call um, you know, I think a lot of the answers to this is, is just making sure that you've got the basics in place, you've got your own audit capability in place, you've got that data lineage under control, you've got the versioning there. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, other brands of, of baked beans you can buy, there's other brands of, of what Doc Science does, but, but you know, these guys have, have, have got this, you know, out of the box. And I think a lot of those anxieties about liability can fall away by just having something off the shelf that, um, that, that, that solves this. So um, that would be my not so quick answer on, on that really difficult but important question. Um, <laughs> Thanks, it's no good, to, good to sense on it. Um, just wondering about the EU white paper, is there like a certain term that I can look up for, um, so data provider accountability for their data? Is, have you got any key terms off the top of your head that I can sift for? <sighs> Do you know what? I'll um, let me let me um, let it's me look at it. Difficult to put you on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, sure. Um, I'm actually I'm writing a um, I'm writing an analysis of the white paper for somebody at the moment. So uh, I um, I'll I'll um, I'll do another review of it um, tonight or tomorrow, and maybe um, uh, I'll, I'll write something up on my blog or something and, and, and post it so you can get it that way. I don't okay. think there's something specifically on this, but I think. Um, I think it's a really important uh, point. Where, where I think most people are focusing on is about um, things like firmware updates. 
So if you buy a product and then the firmware gets updated and then it, it misbehaves, who's liable in that, in that case? And I think a lot of the anxiety around IoT um, is, is around that question of, it's no longer the physical product, it's the product plus the software. I don't think I've seen anything asking about, but what if the data comes from some, somewhere else and whose responsibility is it then? Because obviously this is a, an ecosystem of, 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 of capability. Um, but I'll, 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 now I've had this question, let me, let, me, let me look at the paper again with that lens. And if I find anything juicy that I think would be relevant, I'll, I'll blog about it. That's brilliant. Thank you ever so much. My pleasure. Have a nice uh, evening, Ken. Great. So it's seven o'clock where I am, I guess the top of the hour. I just want to open it up for one more question and then we can finish up. It's anybody else out there have anything uh, that they want to say they want to ask yeah hi um thanks for thanks for that um any philosophical uh, ideas on ml ups itself and this kind of new approach to oh this new ingredient in the mix <laughs> um no, no, no philosophical ideas. I would say. Um, I think um, you know. I, I think. I think my, my, my approach to governance is is. Um, I, I get really frustrated with um, conferences and, and and articles I read that, that kind of talk about governance and they usually the headline talks about ethics because ethics gets people reading, and then what they tend to do is they kind of interchange kind of regulatory stuff with 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 ethics and then with things which I call risk and safety. Um, and so the, the, the takeaway I would offer to everyone, and I, I read a white paper on this, um, uh, which was, uh, if, you, if you Google um, MIT Techlash, you'll, you'll see a link to an article about my white paper. Um, um, but the, the, I think the number one thing that organizations and people need to do is to really clearly separate these three domains of, of governance. So regulatory compliance is super easy because regulations are there. You know, there's lots of people who, like me now, who read them and who then say, this is what you need to do to be to be compliant. And it's kind of super easy to do that. Um, and, and if you want to be better at that than just, just be compliant, then you can also do horizon scanning. You do public policy work or do what Facebook and Google do, which is like spend a huge amount of money on lobbying in order to influence the regulations so they suit back uh, to, to what you, your business uh, commercial goals are. So that's that's easy. The other two issues, risk and safety and, and ethics, get really blurred together. And I would say that the things that you guys care about most, um, you know, as, as engineers and data scientists, are, are things which, you know, you're going to be looking for standards, you're going to be looking for process, you're going to be looking for tools, you're going to be looking for best practice around. Those, if, if, if you hear those words, then almost certainly you're dealing with a risk and safety issue. So things like explainability, bias, um, uh, you know, discrimination uh, through, through bias data, um, transparency, all of those sorts of issues that, that consume a lot of the media, um, those are risk and safety problems. You know, they come from, 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 from imperfect engineering and we can be better at that through better engineering and better tools. Um, the other set of issues around, you know, killer robots and, um, you know, the, the, the gender of chatbots and, and um, you know, facial recognition and, and when it should be used and when it should not be used and, you know, the trolley problem and all those, those other things, those are ethics issues and they can't be solved with, with any of those ingredients. They can only be solved through conversation with people. Um, and I think that's a different domain. So I think within my kind of governance hierarchy, there's, there's three things we need to do. We need to have the we make sure that we're, we're compliant to regulations. At the moment, there aren't any, but there will be very soon, and we need to make sure we've got a grip of that. We absolutely need to get the risk and safety side taken care of, and that's where you guys um, are going to be the most um, uh, uh, consumed with, with those things. And then we need also to think about the ethics piece, because like coming back to Cambridge Analytica, you know, it doesn't, you know, they didn't break any laws. There were no regulations to stop them doing what they were doing. And it wasn't through shitty engineering. It was the opposite. It was about questionable um, application. And the risk is, um, you, know, we, you know, not all of us are going to be able to detect when the work that we're doing is, is going to be used for bad things. And particularly if you're in a business of making technology that other people use, you know, if, you're, if you make knives, 
your job is to make better knives and to be the best you can at making knives. Um, whether people use those knives to kill or to cook is not in your control. Um, and so whether things are, are right and wrong about the application of tech, I think is, is more about conversation. That's ethics. That's probably where people like me are not qualified to answer those questions, but maybe more qualified to help set up some structures to uh, enable those questions to be discussed um, and hopefully driven, driven towards answers. So that's not at all about MLOps. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. MLOps is about the regulation and about the risk and safety, not so much yeah. about the ethics. Yeah, very um, much. I mean, from, from the place you've come from, from the frame you're looking at it, you know, and it's, I'm sure it looks like that, but in those highly regulated environments, DevOps really helped. Um, as you talked about, you talked about um, repeat reproducibility of, of a model and data, uh, and in, in in those environments, uh, DevOps itself provided a great infrastructure that, as a side effect, provided that auditability. Um, and and similarly here, in a lot of things like Kubeflow, I'm seeing that kind of auditability, traceability, and and reproducibility coming through. But DevOps is a hugely philosophical subject more than it is tools and, and uh, i'd look forward to seeing that coming through in in mlops as well um but the philosophy of all these subjects is nice thank you completely yeah so uh unless anyone has a burning question that they want to ask real quick at the end i'm just gonna remind everyone that we have a slack channel for mlops um, where we're going to talk about everything and anything, whether it's the ethos of MLOps or if it's the, uh, this philosophy or just the nitty gritty on the tech part. 